uh, I thought it might be a wise thing to try to do in a half an hour, and that is to have a three-point sermon. The problem is the three points cover three chapters. And so I'd like to have you turn, if you have your Bibles with you, to Romans chapters 9 through 11. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this is impossible. Keith probably spends a whole hour on one verse, which is the, the way I taught him to do it, you know. By the way, I love your pastor, too, just to get it to, on the record. Um, we uh, uh, like to, once in a while, do a uh, kind of a, oh, I don't know, a bird's eye view of a larger section of, of Scripture And what I would ask you to do, if you uh, can't follow along very well, and I'm going to be reading quite quickly when I read passages, maybe jot down the main points that are on the uh, uh, overhead or the uh, uh, PowerPoint, and go home and read through the passages um, at your leisure, of which I'm sure you have much. Uh, But we're going to talk about Romans 9 uh, predominantly as the, uh, the past election of Israel. This is an oversimplification of the three chapters. But then chapter 10 has to do with the present rejection of the people, uh, uh, their rejection of the Messiah. And then chapter 11 has to do with the future salvation of the nation of Israel as a nation. And I want you to know that Romans 9 through 11 has a very, very strong bearing on what you've decided to do for this year, to focus on hope. I understand. Keith told me that you're going to really delve into the idea of hope, and uh, there is no hope without promise. And we focus on the promise, and then we have hope, and then we can share it in the manner and use the methods that God, I think, intends for us to use. So uh, let's keep that in mind. And and the idea is pretty simple, and I hope you'll get it as we go through this. Um, Israel is a microcosm for the body of Messiah. Uh, Israel is given, uh, the history of Israel is given, according to the Word of God, for our instruction. Those things that happen to them are to be instructive for us today. So while we're going to be looking at the past, we're looking at the present, we're looking at the future of the nation of Israel, I hope you'll understand that if there is no Israel... There is no promise for us. And so let's keep that in mind as we, as we go through these pa- this passage. Uh, the first, um, first slide has to do with Israel's past, and it's in Romans 9. Uh, so I'm going to read just a few chapters, chapters a few uh, verses, and then I guess three chapters. But in verses 1 through 5 in particular, we have uh, the blessings to the nation. That is God's blessing to the nation. And I want you to notice the faithful devotion that Paul has to his own brethren according to the flesh. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Very strong words in any language, but especially in the Greek language. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Now, that's saying a lot. Would I say that about my own family members who aren't believers? I'd like to think I would be able to, but maybe not. Paul could. Those of my own race, he says, the sake of my brothers, the people of Israel. And you notice he's pointing it out. 
about whom he is speaking. He's speaking about the people and the nation of Israel. And then he says, theirs is the adoption as sons. He's saying theirs, not those Christians in the body of Christ per se, but theirs, the unbelieving nation, is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the divine glory and the covenants and the receiving of the law and the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever. Praised. Amen. By the way, that last little phrase is a very strong statement about the deity of Messiah. You should make a note of that. But we have adoption, divine glory, covenants, law, temple, promises, the patriarchs, and the lineage of the Messiah all through the Jewish people. So he's talking about the blessings to the nations. Then he moves to the election of Israel. Uh, We're in chapter 9, that great passage in the New Testament that talks about election. And uh, ladies, I'm like a dust dust mopper. What do you call the duster that you... I don't solve the problem. I just stir things up. <laughs> we'll let Keith do the deep cleaning. <laughs> but uh, I can't touch on everything about election that I'd like to. But we can't get away from the fact that it's spoken of in the Scriptures very clearly. Verse 6. It's not as though God's Word had failed. So the question is, what's, what about the Jews? That's his question. What about the Jews? Or maybe there's somebody in the background, maybe a heckler, who's saying, well, Paul, if things are so great for the Christians and they've been blessed with so many things and they're not saved, what about them? What about them? So he says, it's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are the descendants are they all Abram's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it's the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. So it's Isaac, not Ishmael, you remember. And then he goes on to say not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, that is, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau, in comparison, I hated Now, uh, this is clearly stating that God has a purpose. He has an overall plan. He has a sovereign plan that is far beyond my puny brain. And he is saying that uh, he elected Israel, and it came right through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and further on, although it's not discussed here. So these uh, few verses through verse 13, talk about the election of Israel and the way God did it. Now, you might say, as the person sitting in the background would say, well, what shall we say then? God is unjust. And that's usually what people say all the time when confronted with the idea that God somehow has chosen those who will be saved. God is unjust. It's just not fair. But this is not about fairness. It's not about justice. It's about plan an overall plan. 
And there is plenty of cause for each one of us to be strangers from the mercy of God because all of us, by our actions and by the inherited sin nature that we have, we are all destined to die spiritually. But it's His mercy that doesn't give us what we deserve, right? And it's His grace that gives us what we don't deserve. Now, that's the picture of Christianity that is presented in Romans 9 through 11, actually all the way through Romans and Ephesians and Galatians, all of it. But you might say, well, that's not fair. So here's what he says. Moses said, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It doesn't, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort. You can run or you can work, but it depends on God's mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, here's another example, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden through verse 18. So he's got the freedom. He's God and I'm not. I would do it totally differently, by the way. He just hasn't asked me my opinion. You know, I really would. I wouldn't do it the way he done it, has done it. And yet he always leaves room for our own sin, our own hardening. And so Pharaoh, what did he do? He hardened his own heart as well. Uh, don't lose sight of that. All right, we have the guy in the background, the heckler from the back row. Anybody back there want to heckle? Says, well, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, old man, to talk back to God, Paul says. Now, that's kind of like a parent telling to a child, uh, you know, just because I said so, right? Uh, you know, there's a place for a parent to say to his child, because I said so. We don't want to overdo it. We want to explain as much as we can. But sometimes children do not understand what's going on in the mind of the parent, the good parent, right? It seems like that's what Paul is saying about God here. Why does he blame us? And he says, well, who are you to talk back to God? Shall what was formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? I've asked that quite a few times, haven't you? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes? That exquisite French vase or vase, which is it? I don't, I don't know. That same lump of cake, some for noble purposes and some for common use. What if God, he's, he's giving a hypothetical here now, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? And then get this, he says, even us even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, those who have been blessed by God in so many ways, but also from the Gentiles. And so Paul is saying in chapter 9, among other things, he is saying that he's got the freedom, God has the freedom to elect. And furthermore, he shows mercy to Israel. So all the way through verse 29, you have the development of the idea that, that he is choosing a remnant. He is showing mercy to a remnant. I won't take the time to read the whole thing, but skip down to verse 27 where Isaiah is quoted. 
Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. He says, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It's just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. So that's mercy, not giving those members of the the remnant uh, what they truly deserved. And so we can all be very thankful that even us, even the Gentiles, have uh, received this mercy. So in the past, this is how God has worked with them. And, And even in the past, Gentiles have been included. And so the last point on this particular slide is verses 30 through 33. He exalts in the idea that mercy has been extended to Gentiles as well. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness... I'm sorry, I said I read that wrong. I read it as a question. Let me repeat. What shall we say then? Namely this. We shall say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. A righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, in general, the general nation of Israel, but Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, but has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone, that is Jesus Christ, the one who provided salvation through grace. As it is written, I see, I lay in uh, Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. All right, so what are we talking about here? We're talking about God's dealing with the nation in the past and how he's included Gentiles. And all of this is a contrast, isn't it? It's a contrast between those who didn't get it, those who were continuing to try to gain God's favor by their works, And yet those who are touched by God's mercy, touched by God's grace, their eyes are open and we we see, we just see it. I can't explain the difference. I, I just don't know how to do it. But there are some who get it. I hope all of you sitting here get it. And others don't. Some did. That's the small remnant in the Jewish population. Some Gentiles did as well. They understood that it's all of God's grace and it's not the works. Well, we, can, we could stop here and spend the rest of our time talking about how this passage applies to us today. I mean, if you think about it, aren't we still doing the same thing? I mean, isn't the general population still? Israel as well, I mean, the Orthodox Jewish people around who are trying to keep the law and trying to keep the Talmud and all of these things, they're just sold out on works in order to gain salvation. But you look at the rest of the population, the Gentile population who doesn't understand grace. What's the difference between them and us? I hope you understand. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that salvation, even though you might be in a legalistic system or a tradition, salvation is purely by trusting in him for what he has done, not what we do. We just can't do enough. All right. Well, let's go on. Let's, uh, I want to skip down to the 11th, uh, 10th chapter uh, now, and I want you to notice that this is, this is uh, uh, again, what we're, what we're talking about of Israel in the present day. I think it's oversimplification, but I think God, uh, I think Paul is telling us that um, 
there's a reason for all of this. There's a reason why we're in the, the situation we are. He says, brothers, and notice again his strong desire. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. The reason for the rejection is that their zeal is not based on knowledge. We know many people who are quite knowledgeable, knowledgeable about Bible. Uh, my Ph.D. time was spent with uh, the, some of the most um, unbelievable Jewish scholars who wrote books on Ugaritic and uh, Aramaic and all of these things. They were just tremendous scholars. And I would be sitting in class and I would ask the question, some question that related to the New Testament, and they would say, well, what you, you're the minister, you're the Christian, what, what does the New Testament say? And I'd stumble around trying to quote something. And then these Jewish scholars who didn't know, the, uh, I didn't think they would, who didn't know salvation by grace, would quote paragraphs from the New Testament, kind of putting me in my place. But it goes to show that there is a knowledge, and it might be a zealous knowledge, but it's not according to faith. So that applies to a lot of people around us as well, doesn't it? They know a lot, but they haven't crossed over. So he says, I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, and they sought to establish their own. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now he goes on to say uh, in verses 5 through 7, Moses was actually explicit. He describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, don't say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is, somehow I can arrive uh, at a, a place in heaven by my knowledge. That is, to bring the Messiah down to earth. Or who will descend to the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? It's, that would be the, the, the greatest uh, effort uh, ever accomplished, the greatest accomplishment by human uh, work. If I could go up to bring God down, or if he is somewhere else, I could go down and bring him to me. But what does it say? He goes on in verse 8. And this is the remedy, really, for the rejection. There's this rejection of the truth, and now here's the remedy. What does it say? It says the word is near you. It's in your mouth, in your heart. It's the word of faith we're proclaiming. And here's the gospel. And I, I don't know everybody who's here, obviously. But I might guess that there's someone here who's been attracted to this assembly, this group of people. You've heard some good things that you like, but you're still not quite there yet. And here's what Paul is saying about the gospel here. He says, the word is near you, this word of faith that we're proclaiming. If you confess with your mouth, that's the word homologeo, if you say the same thing, that I'm saying with your mouth that Jesus is God. He is Lord, but he's God. He's the divine Messiah. If you say that and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oftentimes we ask the question, what does it take 
for someone to enter into the family. This is it. This is one of the places that I think it's crystal clear. It's a heartfelt conviction and a willingness to confess. Some say it has to be confessed out loud to a group of people. I don't quite go, go along with that. It's rather, I believe, an agreement with God. And you're confessing with your mouth to God that he saves you because of that simple faith that you have. So what is the remedy to rejection? The remedy to rejection is this kind of confession and inviting Christ to be your Lord. Jesus is Lord. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Anyone. That means all of us. Anyone. Jew or Gentile. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same is Lord Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How is that for the remedy? That sounds pretty good to me. Let's go on that notice and notice in verses 16 through 21. There is the statement that tells us that, well, as easy as it is and as simple as we think it should be for someone to come to faith, there's still resistance. And even though we fulfill what the passage also says about, you know, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one? Even if we do the evangelistic message, we go out, we're sent ones, and we present the gospel message to those around us. How many have uh, come to faith as a result of your testimony recently? How many have come to faith as a result of my testimony recently? Not too many. Now let's go from the general population to the Jewish world. I'm surrounded by 80,000 Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn every day. And I get one or two opportunities to share the faith. Uh, I haven't seen anybody come to faith yet. I can tell you some wonderful stories. I really can. They're great stories of how the Lord seems to be opening the door and seeds are being planted and there's a, a response that I didn't expect, a good response that I didn't expect. And there's conversation that takes place and there's discussion about, you know, the Word of God and the, the Savior. But nobody has responded just yet. We like to say in Chosen People Ministries that our job there at the Feinberg Center is to practice the, the ministry of presence. That is, we want to be present. We want to be in the right place at the right time when God starts to do some really special things among the Jewish people. And so I hope that happens before I uh, go to be with the Lord. But let me just uh, read through this very quickly. This is the, the continuing unbelief, and see if it doesn't apply to some of the people you know. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard throughout the word of Christ. But I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. They heard it throughout history, and they're hearing it today. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. That's the servants, the prophets. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. And again, did Israel not understand? Well, Moses said, I'll make you envious by those who are not not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. Uh, That means you and me, essentially. It means those who were persecuting the Jewish people in the past. 
But there is a sense in which we are to bring about a jealousy. Chapter 11, verse 11 indicates that. We'll get there in a moment. And Isaiah boldly says, Furthermore, I was found by those who did not seek me. That's you and me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. That's you and me. But concerning Israel, it was true in Paul's day. It's true today. All day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. I know I'm taking a little uh, exegetical license here, but I think of that verse and I think of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, holding out his hands to those who are not responding those of his chosen people who are not responding, the ancient people of God who are not responding. And I wonder why. Why is that? Now, there are some theological reasons as to why. But basically, they are still resistant. But he, in my humble but accurate opinion, is still holding out his hands to the nation. Now, you might say, well, what if they don't respond? What if they don't respond? Is God finished, therefore, with Israel? Does the church kind of subsume all of the promises that were made in two-thirds of the Bible? Do all of those prophecies about the nation of Israel just kind of fade away because of Christ? We are the new Israel, it is said by some. I think not. And I know that this is part of your DNA here. We believe that God is not finished with the Jewish people. There is coming a time when there will be a righteous king. When Jesus comes back, he's going to rule over the earth. And he's going to come back to his people. And his people, the leaders of the nation, at some point in the future, are going to look to him whom they have pierced corporately. And they're going to weep. They're going to groan in anguish as one who's lost his firstborn. And they're going to cry out, and they're going to say, according to Hosea, Baruch haba b'shem Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So God made promises. Now, this is the key to how it fits into your annual uh, clear vision in 2020. This is the key. The promises stand regardless of the rejection. The promises stand regardless of your obedience. The promises stand for the nation of Israel regardless of their turning away from him in rebellion because he is faithful to the promise that he made. Our salvation, let me repeat, our salvation does not depend one whit on what we do. It depends on what he has done. Okay, So keep that in mind as you go through this, uh, this life. When we, uh, to use the, the, the words of, uh, of uh, Berman, stumbling and bumbling and falling all the way to the goal line. You know? That's what we are. That's what we do. But there is forgiveness. I, you know, I've studied, uh, maybe this isn't uh, the best thing to tell you, but I've become 
a, an expert in Christian sinning. No, wait a minute. I didn't mean to put it that way. <laughs> uh, honestly, though, I think uh, the devil wants to discourage us so much when we fail him, fail the Lord. And so we can spend a lot of time just cycling down, can't we? Uh, because we don't take advantage of what he offers to us in getting back into re- relationship with him, back into fellowship with him, which reminds me, I think you're going through the fellowship book too. Yeah, fellowship. That's what we want. When the Jewish people obeyed the conditional covenant of the Moses, they were blessed. When they failed, when they disobeyed, when they sinned, they were cursed. But they didn't lose their ultimate promise. They did not enjoy the blessing of the promise but it was not it was not revoked which brings us to chapter 11 if you don't have any time to do anything else this afternoon read chapter 11 because we're not going to finish uh, what I'd like to say today but in chapter 11 you have Israel's future salvation i meet with a number of uh, all millennial uh, pastors uh, just because i love fellowship with people i don't agree with <laughs> But we agree with the main thing, you know, Jesus is Lord, and uh, we believe in his salvation. It's just that, yeah, it's just not quite where I'd like him to be. But uh, in our conversations, uh, I always <laughs> bring up 9 through 11 in Romans. And they always say something like this. I don't understand that very well. Can't put that into my particular theological grid. And I said, well, I'm happy to help you if you want me to, but they usually say no. But chapter 11 of Romans is such a great passage. And look how it begins once again. Paul is speaking to the heckler. He's saying, I asked then, or the heckler is saying, did God reject his people? It would seem so, wouldn't it? With all of their rebellion and their disobedience and their, you know. And Paul says, no. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God didn't reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage in Elijah? And so he's using himself as an example. But all the way back in the time of Elijah, same thing was true. He appealed to God, Elijah did, um, against Israel. He said, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars, and I'm the only one left. Are they trying? And they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? God said to Elijah, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And look at what Paul says in response to that quote. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. If it's by grace, by the way, it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What a nice, clear statement, right? What then, Paul says, what Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. There's a remnant within the nation that understands salvation by grace. And even today, it's going on. In the future, it will happen too. In fact, only the remnant will be saved. The all Israel, I think, of 1125 is about the Israel that will be saved. 
Well, others were hardened. Now, um, so rejection is not total. Paul's a good example. Elijah and the 7,000 were a good example. The Sternbergs, the Fruchtenbaums, the Mitch Glazers, the, all the people that I get to work with uh, uh, weekly, they are part of this remnant. They're the ones who are believing. They are the uh, so too at the present time. But let's go on. Let me summarize this just in a few minutes. And then, as I said, you can read it for yourself. The rejection is not total. Blindness in part has happened to Israel. Yes. But there are many, many Jews around the country, around the world that are believing. It's estimated about 100,000 Jewish believers in Israel these days which is very different from when I first went over in 1978. But the rejection is not uh, total. And furthermore, it's not final. Again, I ask, did they stumble as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for Gentiles, now underscore this one in your Bibles if you can. If, if their loss, you know, their failure made it possible for you and me to be part of this wonderful plan. And chapter 11 tells us that we are grafted into the promise. We are like a, a wild olive shoot that has been grafted into the old olive tree. And so it's a beautiful imagery. But he says, if their failure has allowed us to be part of it, and here's the phrase, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? That's a reference to the fullness that will come to Israel in the kingdom. Well, he goes on to talk about uh, the fact that this is going to be life from the dead. And he warns the Gentile church, those of us who are part of the body and part of the, uh, the tree, uh, not to be very careful because we could be broken off as well, not meaning we'd lose our salvation, but the, the, the direction that God decides to go could leave us out. You don't support the root. The root supports you, verse 18 says. And God is able to graft them, those who are broken off, the Jewish people who did not believe, he's able to graft them back in. I have a beautiful picture at home of the grafted tree. It's, it's an olive branch that is pretty sturdy but it always looks different from the old one. There's always going to be a, a, a visible difference, I guess. But it's very, very strong. It's right in there. But just up above that is another grafted uh, olive tree or uh, limb that is broken off. It kind of makes you wonder, you know, um, how God uh, looks at the arrogance that we see in the Gentile church today. I'll leave it at that. There's a horrible attitude toward Israel that's growing and growing in the so-called evangelical wing of the church. It's predicted, though. Okay, uh, now in verses uh, 25 and following, uh, the restoration is assured. So you can read that when you get home. I've got three minutes, and I'm going to finish on time, I promise. Steve told me I had to. But 25 and following, it says, uh, among other things, the deliverer will come from Zion. That's a place name. Interesting. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. As far as the gospel is concerned, 
they, that is the Jewish people today who are opposed to the gospel, are enemies on your account. I face that every day. I sense that all the time. But I need to have a different attitude, and here's the different attitude. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. And here's the phrase, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Would you please translate that from the nation of Israel, the promises that were made to to Israel, to yourself? You've been promised something. The gift of salvation, the calling of God is yours. And just as with Israel, they are irrevocable. That's a phrase that relates to eternal security. All right, well, he, he gets to the end and he can't, he can't help himself. He's got to rejoice. And uh, look at the, the, uh, the bookends. If you go back to chapter 8, verse 37 and following, he expresses, he says, In all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angel or demons or neither the present or the future nor any powers, neither height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he talks about Israel. And he gives you everything that I've given you in these three uh, slides. And then he says at the end of chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depths, depth of riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him, the source, through him, the sustainer, And to him, the restorer, are all things. To him uh, be the glory forever. Amen. Last slide. I'm going to go one minute over. What what are some things? Uh, Go back a little bit. If there is no Israel and no uh, unconditional promises, then there is no hope born out of promise. No election, no failure by Israel to allow us in, no restoration for the future, no discipline. There's no salvation, no mercy to deliver, no grace to save. There are no scriptures without Israel, by the way, and no Messiah to suffer in our stead. No sacrifice made for us, no substitute for our sins, no example to follow, and no resurrection. No return to his people, Israel. No rapture of a remnant. No coming kingdom. And uh, no eternal heaven. I think Israel is pretty important. I think promises to Israel are uh, promises to us. Well, again, I've stirred up the dust. I'm sure you have questions. I'd be glad to talk to you afterwards. I'll stick around for a couple of hours. Then I start getting hungry. (laughs) Father, we're thankful for your love for us, your mercy, your grace. Uh, uh, The riches of your glory uh, revealed to us are beyond our comprehension. So, Lord, we pray that you'll just uh, increase our knowledge, help us to learn day by day more and more of your wonderful plan. Thank you, too, that uh, we can't believe all that you'd like us to believe. Uh, We do have faith, we believe, 
And as the disciples prayed, we ask, uh, help us in our unbelief. So keep moving us forward, Father, until the day that Jesus comes back for his own. And we praise you for uh, the life you give us and the opportunities we have to live for you now. May we take advantage of those. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen.